Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. Today's special guest is one of the most unstoppable and indefatigable human rights campaigners of our lifetime. He first came to prominence in the infamous 1983 Bermondsey by-election, the most homophobic election ever in British history, he called it, when he stood for Labour and was subject to astonishing attacks from the press, his opponents and some of his own party, as well as physical assaults. Many of those verbal attacks will be considered criminal offences under today's legislation. Since then, he's fought for LGBT rights in the UK and beyond. He twice attempted to make a citizen's arrest of Robert Mugabe and the issues he's campaigned upon have never conformed to straightforward party lines. For instance, he was against both the Iraq war and extreme politicised Islam, and he's defended the right to speak for people like Julie Bindle and Jermaine Greer, ironically earning himself an attempted no platform as transphobic from the NUS in 2016. It didn't succeed. He continues to fight for human rights as the founder of the Peter Tatchell Foundation. The clue is in the name. It's Peter Tatchell. Hello, Peter. How are you? Great to join you. Thanks for joining us. Very kind of you. It's a bit of a cliche to say, how's your lockdown been now? But uh, you walked the route of the original Gay Liberation Front Pride March on Pride Day. How was that? Well, it was fantastic to join with other veterans from the Gay Liberation Front in the early 1970s to both celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Gay Liberation Front, but also to reclaim Pride as a march for LGBT plus human rights. Um, In recent years, the march has been depoliticized, it's been commercialized and become far too corporate. We want Pride to get back to its roots, and that means campaigning for LGBT plus rights here in Britain and especially around the world. Yeah, I mean, I have gay friends too who go, well, they just stick a rainbow on everything now. Every bank and every shop has got a rainbow on it. And there's an M&S LGBT sandwich, a BLT sandwich, which is quite a good sandwich. But do you ever find yourself thinking, you know, we've won a lot of victories here, but, you know, the radicalism is perhaps lost on a younger generation who haven't experienced those, those same kind of extreme privations that you did? Well, yes. When I was growing up as a teenager, homosexuality was still illegal. The maximum penalty was life imprisonment. Um, The medical and psychiatric professions said that being gay was a form of illness and required cure. And at public expense on the National Health Service, they subjected some LGBT plus people to an electric shock aversion therapy to try and cure their same-sex desires. Uh, Back then, of course, There were no public figures who were openly gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Um, It was a very, very different world. But we have made enormous changes. And I want to thank everybody, both LGBT plus and straight, who've walked with us on this long march to freedom. Do you really feel that um, lesbian and gay culture has been has become properly uh, a central part of, of British culture now? Because you know, you do see you know there's openly uh, gay and lesbian celebrities and uh, a kind of a, a, a sort of an overt sense that everything is 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 you know, is, is sorted now, and yet you still see episodes of, of of homophobic violence that are you know perhaps not as addressed as seriously as they might be. Well, you're right. I mean. Compared to the 1980s, at the height of the AIDS pandemic and the hysteria around Tory government's anti-gay law, Section 28, compared to that today, nowadays, well, only about 16% of the British public still believe that homosexuality is mostly or always wrong. Only 16%, but that is like a, a significant proportion, you know, more than one-sixth of the British public still believe that. 
Um, so it shows there's work to do. And of course, in our schools, um, nearly half of all LGBT plus young people say they were bullied and victimized because of their sexuality or their gender identity. And on our streets, uh, about a third of all LGBT plus people in Britain have been victims of homophobic, biophobic or transphobic hate crime, often not just once, but sometimes three, four or five times over their life. There is still work to do. A lot of, you know, I have older sort of gay and lesbian friends who's, they don't sort of really want to talk about it publicly so much, but they often feel like they've kind of been marginalised within the, you know, what used to, as you described, the gay liberation front, you know, the old style, uh, you know, gay liberation movement, that perhaps they've been marginalised by the kind of the newer incarnations of it, the kind of amorphous idea of queer and the, and the trans debate and so on. They often say they sort of feel like their movement isn't really theirs anymore. What, what would you say to that? Well, of course, the ideals of the Gay Liberation Front back in the early 1970s were the liberation of all humanity. We were an LGBT plus focused movement, but we also stood in solidarity with other oppressed and disadvantaged minorities and communities, um, including women, black and Asian people, people with disabilities and so on. Um, you know, we never had this mono focus on gay, gay, gay. Now, of course, we wanted to end uh, discrimination against our community, but we also want to see a better society for everyone. And it's very interesting that today the mantra is equal rights and equality. But back then, the Gay Liberation Front never argued for equal rights or equality. Um, we knew it was important, but we saw that as being a very limited horizon. Uh, our argument was, and I still hold this belief today, um, who wants to be equal within an unjust, flawed society? Surely we want to transform society to make it better for everyone. So if you look at, say, for example, relationship and sex education in schools, of course it won't, we want it to be inclusive for LGBT plus people, but also we want it to be better for everyone, including straight kids. And we know from young people's own surveys that they say time and time again that the relationship and sex education they receive in schools is woefully inadequate. It doesn't address many of the issues that concern them. It doesn't answer lots of the questions they have. So better, improved sex education is the answer, not mere equality with a deficient level of that education. How do you feel about the, the kind of tone of the trans debate and, and the kind of you know, the, the monstering of quotes turfs and the, the kind of the, the, the kind of rancorous nature of it? Do you, do you think it's possible to get to a reasonable conversation between trans people and trans allies and women who feel, for instance, threatened by self-ID? Because it feels like, you know, if you were, if, if you were a straight person looking to maintain a patriarchy, you really couldn't set up a better situation than this kind of internecine warfare between people who ought to be progressives. Well, you're right. I mean, I condemn uh, intolerance, violence and threats from whichever side. And there has been a bit on both sides. But I think the fundamental issue we have to face is that women, including trans women, are victims of discrimination hate crime, domestic violence, rape, and that all women, trans or not, have a responsibility and an interest in standing together to support each other. Now, we know that 
most women's organizations in this country have been trans inclusive for many years, not only with the agreement of their management boards, but also with the agreement of their clients. And hardly any of those women's organizations have had a problem. Um, the problem has been confected by some people who are clearly hostile to the rights of trans women in particular. They don't seem to care much about trans men, but they're particularly concerned about trans women. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them do portray trans women as predators, as threats, as rapists, as killers. And I've seen this on my own you know, social media and emails that I get from some women who claim to be defending women's rights. They come out with the most shocking stereotyping and demonization of trans people. You know, no one would ever tolerate uh, a similar stereotyping of Muslim people or black people or Jewish people. If on the basis of the bad deeds of a handful, people tried to demonize all Muslims, all Jews and all black people in that way, they would be howled down. But these people seem to think that it's okay to demonize trans women in this way. The overwhelming majority, 99.999% of trans women are no threat to anyone. And you cannot make policy based on the bad deeds of a tiny infinitesimal minority. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. There was a, an, an attempt to, to kind of cancel you uh, in connection with Julie Bindle and Jermaine Greer and Julie Birchill and so on. But also, another, you know, you, you also found a, a, a situation where the kind of, I suppose, the, to an extent, the invitations on the left start, started to dry up when you were talking about fundamentalist Islam, that, uh, you know, people were happy to have you speak when you were talking about human rights. But when you started to talk about the dangers of extreme Islamism, um, there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of pushback there. Can you what happened there, and 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 how how did it feel to to, to find yourself as someone who's campaigned for human rights to find that maybe that you're the, the people you should be allied with were step were maybe stepping away from you? Well, first let me say that I am a great and passionate defender of free speech. It is one of the most important of all human rights, and there have to be very strong, compelling reasons to restrict it. So that's why I've said that although I profoundly disagree with the views of people like Jermaine Greer and Julie Bindle on trans issues, I do defend their right to speak and believe that the appropriate response is to protest against them. And indeed, I have supported protests against them, peaceful, dignified protests to defend the rights of trans people. Um, when it comes to political Islam, uh, you're right. Um, you know, the kinds of views that these extremists hold, deeply misogynistic, homophobic, against democracy and human rights, if they were held by you know, the far right, which, which many of them, those views are held right. by the far right, the left mobilizes against a protest. But when these same views are held by Islamist extremists, the left is almost entirely absent. And that is so wrong because those regressive anti-human rights views should be challenged without fear or favor. No one should ever demonize all Muslim people because of the actions of a handful of extremists. And I do not do that, and I caution people to never do that, to make an important distinction between the Muslim population as a whole, the wider community, 
and those extremists. But I'm sad to say that many on the left, I wouldn't say all, but many on the left just don't have the guts to stand up for what is right. They fear that by uh, taking a stand against extremists, they are somehow encouraging anti-Muslim prejudice. Well, that is not true. If you make a clear distinction between the Muslim community and the extremists, you are not demonizing the Muslim community. You are not fueling anti-Muslim prejudice. And moreover, if you don't take a stand against Islamist extremists, you are creating a vacuum which is being filled by the BNP, the EDL, and other far-right extremist groups. That is the great failing of the left. We have got to take a stand based on the principle that human rights are universal and indivisible. And whoever seeks to deny human rights must be challenged. In our email conversations before, when we were setting up this uh, this podcast, uh, you mentioned that uh, you wanted to talk about a wider spread of things. You wanted to talk about economic justice and re- restructuring the economy, getting us out of the COVID hole and, th- and, and uh, paying for the vast investment that will be required to do that. I mean, these are the most astonishing times. We're about to go into a once in 300 years recession. And it feels like there's no real forward-looking political agenda. That uh, It's all retrograde and our government is sort of aiming itself at the, the needs of a 60-plus-year-old voter. Do you think that change and a positive reorganization and realignment of our economy is going to be forced on us by circumstances? Is coronavirus going to at least provide that reset moment that people keep talking about? Well, it should, whether it will, Mm -hmm. that's something we'll see in the coming months and years. I mean, I start from the position that here in Britain, the richest 1,000 individuals have a combined personal wealth of over 700 billion pounds and they actually increased their wealth in many instances during the coronavirus pandemic and the economic devastation in contrast nearly a million people in this country are dependent on food banks to feed their families now that kind of economic inequality can never be justified i mean to have people with such enormous wealth while others are struggling to get the basics of food on the table, that is just so, so wrong. And if we look at the situation globally, we see that the 62 richest individuals in the world have as much wealth as the poorest three and a half thousand million people on this planet. In other words, you know, the 50 percent poorest people on this planet have the same wealth as the 62 richest individuals. You know, we've got a situation where nearly a thousand million people on this planet have either no safe drinking water, are hungry and or malnourished. Again, this cannot be right. We do have to change things. We have to create a kinder, gentler world where everyone has the basic decencies of life, where just because someone is successful, of course they should be rewarded, but not on the scale of the people like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Richard Branson and all the other billionaires out there. Their wealth is excessive. They don't need six houses or 12 houses around the globe, three luxury yachts, four private jets, 
um, you know, dozens of old master paintings. They don't need this. Maybe one or two, <laughs> but it's not justified for them to have such enormous wealth in a world where there is still so much poverty and deprivation. I would I would settle for just one old master in my house. I think that will be absolutely adequate for, for my needs. Um, many listeners will be thinking, though, we've just been through a general election in Britain where the, the electorate pretty much uh, opted uh, for the opposite of what you just described. And you can, uh, you know, we could talk at length and have on this podcast talked at length about the, the unattractive nature of the, the leader that was just uh, offered uh, up against Boris Johnson last time. But you know, it, it doesn't feel like we're heading in that direction. How do we bring into being the things that you've just described? Well, of course, one of the problems here in Britain is the unfair, undemocratic voting system. Under first past the post, Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, won less than 44% of the vote, but they bagged 56% of the seats. And with that majority, they have 100% of the power. That is not democracy. It's not what the Chartists or the suffragettes fought for. You know, we have to have a fairer voting system. It cannot be right that no governing party in Britain since 1931 has won a majority of the public vote. Every single governing party since 1931 has won power based on a minority of the public vote. So PR is not perfect, but some form of PR is obviously better than what we have. Now, we have forms of PR that work well in Scotland, Wales, the north of Ireland, and in the London Assembly elections. It works there. There are constituency members, and then there are additional top-up members. It's not a perfect system. But what it means is that the proportion of seats won by a party corresponds quite closely to the percentage of votes won by that party. And that, to me, is a fairer system. Do you think Labour made a mistake in not backing PR uh, clearly in the referendum in, what was it, 2010 now? Because that, was, that appears to be a once-in-a-generation uh, opportunity to actually reform voting in this country. Well, of course... The former portion representation, the AV system, that was an offer in the referendum was not genuine proportional representation. Mm -hmm. It would have produced a result similar to the current first-past-the-post system. So that's why many people who did want voting reform did not vote for it, because it was not an improvement on what we've got. What Labour should have done back in the days of Tony Blair, is implement Lord Jenkins' proposals for the additional member system, like they have in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, uh, and London. Um, but Tony Blair decided that he wasn't going to do it. So he had a chance then to implement a fair voting system, and he refused. And that is one of the reasons why Labour has been locked out of power uh, since 2010. You know, most people did not vote for the Conservatives. But because of our, our broken system of voting, the Conservatives have won power. The defining characteristic of politics right now is populism across the world, across the Western world. Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro, um, even Modi in India. It's not 
delivering on the things that you just described. It's not it's not attacking inequality. It's not um, you know creating uh, you know the kind of you know, economic growth in the places where economic growth is needed. Um, do you think the populist moment is fading? Well, certainly you're right that far right populism has been on the ascendancy uh, in many many countries. Um, you know, Hungary and Poland. Um, you know, there's been rising movements in many European countries. Of course, as you say, you've got Trump in the United States, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and so on. Those movements do not offer solutions. In all those different countries in different ways, um, the populist rhetoric has not delivered concrete results. And it is a populist rhetoric that has often been based upon scapegoating and stereotyping particular people. So we see the rise of anti-Semitism in parts of Eastern Europe, the rise in anti-LGBT um, prejudice and uh, discrimination. Um, we see in Brazil, you know, the rollback of the protections and gains won by indigenous communities in the Amazon. Um, this is all very frightening and very dangerous. It won't produce the solution the populists claim. The trouble is, will those who stand against this far-right populism be able to articulate an agenda that has mass appeal, broad appeal? Now, I've got to tell you that for many decades, I've been championing what I call economic democracy. Um, we all expect political democracy. Mm. And indeed, in our political system, despite the flawed voting system, we all have one person, one vote. But the economic system is effectively a dictatorship. It is a system whereby a handful of managers, directors, and major shareholders have all the votes. They decide everything. Whereas the employees in both private and public institutions like the National Health Service are locked out of power and decision-making. That is not democratic. And I want to see, for example, um, a legal requirement for at least one third employee and consumer representatives on the boards of both private and public institutions so that employees can be represented and so that the wider public as consumers can be represented. I don't think it's good to have untrammeled corporate power. I don't think it's right that companies operate driven by a profit motive without looking to the social consequences of what they do, without recognizing the importance of also taking into account the public good. Now, that's a very simple idea. Yeah. And I've got to say that I've often spoken about this idea to some quite conservative audiences. And although some have initially balked at the idea, um, many have in the end, even some business people have said to me, yes, this makes sense. And they say, why? I say, well, why would it make sense? I know why, but I ask them, why do you think it would make sense? And they say, business leaders say, well, if we had this more co-determination within the workplace, if workers had grievances, they could bring them to the board and we'd be able to resolve them. There wouldn't be a need for strikes. Hmm. So therefore, we would have less loss of economic productivity due to industrial action. They also say, and this is another very important point, is that the shop floor workers, the people in the front lines of offices, factories, the National Health Service, local councils, the people at the grassroots, they have accumulated during their working life 
an incredible reservoir of knowledge and skills about how the business operates or the public institution operates. They know the problems and they can often come up with ways of improving it based on that particular direct frontline experience. And that again is a way of making both private and public institutions more productive, more effective, more efficient. Isn't that more likely to come actually from the institutions themselves, from the private institutions themselves? It's not the kind of thing that government, and particularly this government, is likely to legislate for. You're more likely to see it from companies taking it on their own initiative. I mean, are you seeing evidence of that happening anywhere? Well, not in any significant way. (laughs) Um, I mean, in Germany, they have the Works Council system, which is a watered-down version of what I'm proposing, where there are employee representatives on the decision-making boards of companies. And the German business people say that as a result, um, they resolve issues and therefore have far fewer strikes than in Britain and many other countries. They also say that the input from employees can often help improve the efficiency of their companies. And then in some of those companies, what they rightly do, and they have a moral responsibility, moral responsibility to do, is to give the employees a share in the increased profits that are made. Now, that to me seems a more sensible way of going. So I would say that as well as having consumer and employee representatives on the boards, I think there also needs to be in private business a proper profit sharing scheme where if employees contribute ideas that make their companies more efficient and therefore increase profits, the employees should also share in those profits. All the profits should not be taken by the shareholders. You mentioned a minute earlier Poland and Hungary and the populists in in Europe. Do you think the EU is failing in not sanctioning Poland for its, its homophobic policies, its ending of an independent judiciary? for failing to sanction Hungary for its own huge attacks on democracy and its institutional political anti-Semitism. Should, is, is the EU falling down here in, 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 in not doing anything about these developments? Absolutely. Um, if you belong to an organisation, it's your duty and responsibility to abide by the rules. And if you break the rules, then I think there needs to be consequences. And I think the European Union has been very slow to upbraid Poland and Hungary about the human rights abuses that are happening in those two countries. Now, I'm not saying necessarily they should be expelled, but maybe they should lose some preferential treatment. Um, Maybe the leaders should be targeted for sanctions. Um, I don't think the European Union can just sit back and allow them to get away with it Because otherwise, what's the point of having a European Union if members can flout the rules? Just in closing then, it's only 2020 and it feels like an absolute eternity of things have happened in this decade so far, which is not even a year old. What kind of a decade do you think the 2020s are going to be? We saw the 2010s where it's a rise of populism, Brexit, national division, rancorous debate. What do you think the 2020s are going to be like? Well, I'm no Mystic Meg. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm like not going to make any, any predictions, but I know what I would like to happen. You know, I would like to see the world emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic um, a better place, mm. you know, with greater social justice, 
you know, I want to see a green recovery where we invest um, in hundreds of thousands of new jobs here in Britain, in renewable energy, in energy conservation and insulation, in improved and better public transport. Um, I want to see us make this leap into something new and better. I don't want to see a return to business as normal. You know, I, I think back at the height of the lockdown to have beautiful, clear blue skies, to have no noise pollution from aeroplanes and hardly any traffic on the roads, you know, pumping fumes into our lungs. I mean, that was just so wonderful. Mm. Um, you know, you know, see birds and bees and butterflies come back in the, to the garden, which I hadn't seen for years. I mean, it was just so fantastic. Um, and it isn't just about <laughs> my pleasure. It's also <laughs> about, you know, it's our collective pleasure. You know, quality of life has got to come first. And I was very gratified that there was a poll a few weeks ago which showed that the majority of British people do not want to return to business as usual. They do want us to take this opportunity to build back better, to create a green, sustainable economy, to ensure uh, you know, reduced inequalities between rich and poor, to uplift those marginalized communities around us, to create a cohesive society where we can all support each other. You know, I'm a great believer in, you know, the power of us working together to change things for the better. And I don't see much hope of that with the Conservative government, but I do believe that a people's movement to pressure for change, for a reset, for a rethink, I think that might be possible. It might produce changes. It might act as a restraint upon the Boris Johnson government. And even some conservatives are thinking about the same thing. This isn't strictly a left-right thing. Even many conservatives and people on the centre are saying, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity. This is like the end of the Second World War. It's a chance to um, rebuild our society in a different way that makes us all happier, better human beings. And that, you know, sounds a bit sort of, you know, you know flowery and sort of um, vague, but, you know, you know what I mean, you know. Yeah. Quality, quality <laughs> of life is important. It isn't just about quantity of life or quantity of economic wealth or whatever. It's about quality of life. And that's, I want, I want a society rebuilt with a quality of life for everyone. I'm all for flowery and vague. It gets me out of bed in the morning. Peter Tatchell. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on and keep on keeping on. And I think you are an inspiration to everybody who follows you and um, good luck with it. Um, and hope to uh, hope to talk to you again on the bunker one of these days. Thank you very much. Very much. It's been my pleasure. Can I just say that anybody is interested, um, please go to my website, petertatchellfoundation.org. You can see information about the various campaigns and work we do. And in the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says, join us. If you give us your email address, uh, we'll send you uh, weekly bulletins about a range of human rights issues. It's all free. There's no subscription charge. You'd be most welcome to join our little human rights community. But thank you. And I'll finish with my motto, which is, don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. 
there you go. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. Don't forget the live stream this Thursday, uh, 9th of July at 8pm for Patreon backers. We hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Peter Tatchell and we'll see you all soon. Goodbye. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.